0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological
1: Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. When people interact with God's Word, they have potential for eternal life change, and that's what we experience through the trauma healing ministry, the start. Is allowing the Holy Spirit to bring a space in our lives and in our conversations with others where the trauma experience can come to life and not be further wounded.
0: This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and also improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan. Uh, We're glad you're here where we are learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jamie Aiton, and our producer, Laura Finch. Today, we're thrilled to be talking with the Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, who is founder and executive director of Soul Fire International Ministry and senior vice president of Ministry Impact at the American Bible Society, and she's a friend of HDI, and Nicole, we're so glad that you're here.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be with you guys today.
0: Thanks, Nicole. wanted to start with um with your title and what your work is. And so your title is VP of Ministry Impact. would love to hear how you define impact in your context. Like, mm. Notoriously, when it comes to spiritual matters, uh, this can be hard to do. So I'd love to hear what kind of change you're hoping to see and also how you measure that change. We're diving in. We go straight to Questions here. We didn't do much uh, small talk first. Uh, no. but- <laughs>
1: like what happened to the? How are you doing how Are yes. you kids?
0: <laughs> Listeners, we did ask Nicole how she was doing right before we got started. So.
1: <laughs> That's perfect. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to answer that question. And um, American Bible Society has been around for 205 years. It'll be 206 this year. And our mission has been consistently to make God's Word available and affordable in a language that every person in the world can understand can afford, can access, so that all may experience the life-changing power of God's word. And my specific area of ministry, Impact, focuses on how we facilitate life change domestically and internationally. And we define that through the pathway of scripture engagement, which helps us to figure out if a person is Bible-engaged, Bible-disengaged, Bible-friendly. And we also measure that in a number of other ways, through the partners that we serve, through the reach that we have internationally, through um, the ways that we're doing our translation and our distribution, and even engagement through trauma healing. So it's a path that we're on. It's it's gradual, but it's been a steady obedience kind of in that same direction, uh, to quote that popular phrase. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's been a joy to see God's word impact lives.
0: You know, I just, as you said that, I, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but after the earthquake in Haiti, I was mm-hmm. working there. We were doing all kinds of response. But one of the things we did is we partnered with the Bible Society um, yeah. to have a lot of um, Bibles in Crail available. And it's really meaningful part, you know, there are obviously all kinds of other physical needs, but it was great to have uh, Bibles be part of this outreach and work we were doing with community. I think it was tens of 10,000 Bibles. I'm, I can't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. And it was a really wonderful partnership with with you all that I got to be involved in. So I'm really grateful That's for awesome. the work that you're doing there.
1: Yeah, we love partnerships like that.
2: Well, Nicole, one of the partnerships that you have that recently got my attention was a study that uh, American Bible Society did with Baylor, and we're looking at the impact, so kind of staying on um, this idea of impact that you're sharing, um, looked at the impact that the trauma healing program was having in correctional facilities. Mm -hmm. So one, maybe you could just share a little bit about what was found, and then the other part is Why is it important for us as Christians to approach things with scripture, but also with research?
1: That is a perfect question. Um, I am so grateful for our many partnerships. Again, so much of the work that we do at ABS is about really connecting with partners and ensuring that everyone has what they need. Um, So we've done uh, a lot of work with trauma healing. Trauma healing kind of has been around for about twenty years. ABS got involved with that work about eleven years ago. Um, Some of our team members were there in, in the DRC in the Congo and was. Able to see the impact of Bible engagement on healing the wounds of tremendous trauma, and ever since that moment, almost eleven years ago, we've been engaged on this journey of, of kind of maximizing healing for the wounds of trauma. And who would have thought that we would be presented with a trauma pandemic that's lasted for almost two years now? And many researchers say will stay with us even long after the masks come off. So. As we were engaging this study with Baylor um, in 2018, 2019, we had no idea how important that research would be for the work ahead. So uh, Byron Johnson was one of the uh, key partners that we had during that time. Um, He's just been a really great partner specifically because his expertise is in the area of prisons and jails and the trauma that they present. Um, So as we were working with him, we were asking a sincere question, how does the trauma healing ministry compare with other programs that help to heal the wounds of trauma specifically within prisons and jails? And Byron Johnson gave us this beautiful and amazing quote. And I don't want to mess it up. So I'm going to read it for you right now. Um, his, his quote specifically for us was, uh, no other known intervention accomplishes so much good for highly traumatized jail inmates in such a short period of time. And this was a gift to us because we'd known anecdotally that trauma healing made a difference, but having the research really helped. Um, two points of research that that really strike me. The first was seeing the drastic decrease of PTSD during the six to eight weeks of the program, that coupled with positive interactions with the Bible. So the inmates were not, there was no prerequisite that they had to be engaged Christians or that they had to be really super excited about the Bible, but there was a dramatic increase in positive interactions with the Bible and a decrease of PTSD. And here's the best part. After a period of about six months after the program, Byron and his team found through four points of measurements that the reduced PTSD and the reduction of negative emotions and the increase of forgiveness and closeness to God lasted six months after the program was done. And he said, "This is a big deal because with many of their eighteen-month programs, when the program is over, um, you don't see as much change in the heart of the individual. So it begs the question, why? And we believe it's because when people interact with God's Word, they have potential for eternal life change, and that's what we experience through the trauma healing ministry.
0: That's great, Nicole. Yeah, it's so great to hear about the impact, and as Jamie said, this um, had asked this mix of research and um faithful biblical interventions and interactions uh, is so encouraging could you yeah. describe just in a, a little more detail what is it like to go through that program as we've talked about this you know for a listener who isn't familiar you know is it a 6 to 8 weeks one hour session of sort of group conversation that's facilitated or just just describe in some detail what what that looks like for someone to go through that
1: hmm That's a great question. So it really depends on the context. In short, the curriculum itself has about eight sessions, six to eight sessions. And it's always six to eight because there are different sessions that you can pull in depending on your context. So you may want to pull in a special session on abortion or a special session on suicide or on genocide. So it really depends on the context of the group. But you can think of this like a Bible study. And this is a group that comes together for the purpose of healing that walks through our curriculum called Healing the Wounds of Trauma, How the Church Can Help. The facilitators are trained. So the core of this model is it, it's a train the trainer model. So all you need are, are a few people from your church or your organization to go and be trained as facilitators. The training includes going through a healing group. So you'll go through that healing group experience during the training. And the thing about the healing group is it's not just a series of kind of lessons put together. It follows a a training arc, a a trauma healing experience arc. And this has been vetted with our psych with our, our partner psychologists, with missionaries and with church leaders. And this trauma healing arc is what the whole core focus depends on. The arc begins with suffering and being heard. What does it mean to experience suffering? How do we see God in that? It kind of peaks at the top of the arc with bringing pain to the cross. This is one of the most powerful sessions. I've I've been through a healing group myself, and it was one of the most powerful sessions that we've built to this moment of release to Christ. And I've heard countless stories of how this particular lesson, this moment, can be the game changer for people. And then as you kind of crest down the other side of the arc, you get to points of forgiveness and rebuilding, and you end on resilience, which is so, so important because healing doesn't start and end with a curriculum. The point of building resilience is the whole goal, perhaps of our faith, but also, and especially of this program. So it's six to eight weeks. It's about two hours each time. I have uh, church groups that have decided we're going to do it in a weekend format. So they might do two weekends and just kind of go through the process with breaks. Um We've got groups that that will do this in the evenings or they'll take a, a, a day each week and cover it in six days. So there's so many ways to do it. And COVID has taught us we can do this virtually, we can do this in person, but it really depends on the context.
2: So, Nicole, you just shared about the powerful role that the church can play in healing, especially around trauma. But we've also seen lots of examples where sometimes the church is where trauma happens or even in some instances may even cause trauma. So just curious, what sort of actions can local churches take to make sure they are helping and not actually causing more harm?
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you know, we, we've we done a lot of work with um, Diane Langberg, and one of the things that she said in one of her articles on shepherding and caring for the traumatized was to allow spaces for people to define their own experience and to define it in a way where there's not an expert in the room to kind of dictate this is what you're supposed to do next, but really to create spaces where there's a guide but where the experience can come to life and where the Holy Spirit can do the healing. And I think that's exactly what trauma healing seeks to do. When we train facilitators, we are not training experts. We're not only looking for your counselors in your congregation. We're not only looking for the pastor or the discipleship lead. We're looking for people who are willing to ask questions and serve as guides in the process of God's healing in the lives of others. So the first thing that churches can do is they can start by offering healing groups. And you can get all of this information on traumahealinginstitute.org. That's our website. If you go to experiences or events, I believe the page is events, you'll find all of the healing groups and all of the trainings that are available. So step one is join a healing group, uh, those who want to be trained. And then step two is to be trained as a facilitator of that healing group. And then your third step is to offer your first group. And I'm telling you this because we are doing this at my church right now. I'm like thrilled and excited. This is actually happening. We had um, two people from our church go through a healing group and get trained and they are leading uh, their first set of healing groups. And then we found out when we started announcing that we're offering healing groups, that there were four other people in the congregation who had been trained someplace else, we're like, "Oh my god, this is so great!" So now we're offering, I think, three healing groups at one time. We've get we've got emails from other people saying, "How do I lead a healing group?" Fantastic! We've got a process. Get started today.
0: That's exciting. Thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, how fun to. F- Find out you have more people and have that momentum together is fantastic. It'll be fun. We'll, we'll do this another time, maybe have you back for another podcast. We have a spiritual first aid that we've been developing that is different. and yes. going to complement this um, in, in really exciting ways. So that'll be something that we can keep talking with you about down the road. Um, as people are, you, you mentioned those other folks in your church who mm-hmm. had been trained. Um they're helping, you know, facilitate this, work with people who are trauma. A lot of our students in our master's program partners we work with around the world, like you, are people who feel called to serve survivors of trauma. Mm-hmm. What have you found for advice that's either built in a curriculum or just personally, as you've worked with people doing this sort of work for, you know, yeah, giving people advice, wisdom for how to work with survivors of Mm -hmm. trauma and be able to make it through. We know secondary trauma is a thing Mm -hmm. and there are issues of burnout and compassion fatigue. We'd love to hear just personally what you've learned uh, about that space to to navigate helping people who are survivors of trauma.
1: Yeah. Well, um, it's funny you ask this question because I've been doing a little research on this um, for a friend who was asking, how do you preach in a way that doesn't re-traumatize people intentionally or unintentionally, and it really got me thinking about how all of us, regardless of what program you use or, you know, what, what um, kind of healing agent you engage in through, through God's Word, all of us need to be adapting the skill sets to have trauma-informed care as part of our conversations and part of our lives. And one of the things um, that I've already mentioned that's a key part of being trauma-informed is recognizing that everyone's experience of trauma is going to be different. And we have to allow them to have that kind of space to be different. Um, For example, I had a conversation with a person uh, just this weekend that I met. And, you know, just we were having casual conversations. She really opened her heart up to share about an incident that was very traumatic for her. As a listener, I can tell you it didn't feel like it would be trauma for me. If I'd gone through the same thing she'd gone through, I may not have experienced that as a traumatic moment. But the way that she described it, based on her background, her experience, the the impact that it had on her heart, it was important for me to be a listener that affirmed her experience as traumatic, rather than trying to explain, well, it wasn't that big of a deal, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it. Just We can do a good job helping people to um, let their experience stand on their own, and not to try and uh, explain away or, or heal away someone else's pain, but just to let that breathe. And then I think the second thing we can do is recognize that the Bible is full of stories of trauma, but also of healing and hope. And I'm thinking about some of the lesser known stories. I'm thinking about Rizpah in 2nd Samuel, you know, the woman whose son was murdered and murdered along with other sons and David did not do what he should have done. He he sh- he promised that they would be buried and they were not and Rizpah stood throughout the weeks and months of harvest fighting off the wild animals and, you know, the creatures and and sitting in the rain and the sun just to hold vigil over their bodies. And I think about how about all of the Mothers that have lost children due to senseless acts of murder or violence, how do we support them? Sometimes it means just sitting with them while they hold vigil. Sometimes it's, it's being present with them. Other times it's being in solidarity with them and fighting for justice on their behalf and with them. So I think the range of what to do is big, but the start is allowing the Holy Spirit to bring a space in our lives and in our conversations with others where the trauma experience can come to life and not be further wounded.
2: Nicole, last year at our Spiritual First Aid Summit online, you shared with us about a particular type of trauma. You were talking some about racial trauma. Help us better understand what racial trauma is and how do we go about addressing it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, ever since that first conversation, um, the idea of racial trauma has become even more complex. And at its core, just like trauma is the effect of a moment that that causes us intense horror or fear or um, you know deep deep emotion, um, it, generational trauma. It's the same thing, but it's what's passed on from generation to generation. So as it relates to racial trauma, this is the trauma of racism, of slavery, of oppression that's passed on every generation where there are things learned as a result of the horror that one has experienced. And and the thing about it, we cannot continue to see generational trauma as that which only affects Black people or descendants of slaves. Racial trauma affects white people. It affects immigrants. It affects all of us in some way. So as we think about how racial trauma affects black communities, we think about the horror that comes from the fear of a police officer not knowing whether that officer is for or against you will support and preserve your life or try and take it we think about the horror and the fear that comes from white people who've been taught generation after generation who to fear, who not to lend to, who to who to be careful in your business with. And they're very very subtle. We we're, we're in a stage where um the trauma of 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 racial injustice can be so subtle. The microaggressions can happen so much over time, over time, over time that if you're not careful you can ignore it. And then we talk about generational trauma as as the pain that's even passed on from the trauma of immigration. And that's a whole new conversation to open and bring into conversations about race. So what we're seeing is um, there's an openness now for some people to identify authentic trauma. I was talking with a dear friend of mine, um, again, just a few days ago, a white guy, grew up in um, kind of a middle-class family. His father was a business owner and his father um, would hire black employees. And that really changed his life because he got to see and develop relationships with uh, people of color through that experience from his dad. And his dad had a good heart and was really you know, passionate about making sure that justice was served. But even in that reality, he shared with me, But I only saw Black people as those people to be hired. And I saw their worth according to what they could give to support my father's business. Even that is trauma that needs to be unpacked so that we can do a better job of reconciling and move through that healing arc toward true resilience. I could go on and on about this, so...
2: Well, let's give you some more space to keep going. So you're on a roll. And I think it's really helpful here. You know, one of the other things related to what you just shared about is also this idea of normalized stress, especially within Black communities, like how Black women raised in the US have a a higher uh, bodily markers of stress than white women or Black women who maybe grew up overseas. Yeah. When we see these sorts of disparities, what is it that we should be looking for to be able to recognize what what is normalized stressed? and then how can the church go about trying to reduce these disparities?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is really what you're touching on is so important. My husband my husband works in healthcare, and you know my eyes have been kind of open to the the drastic disparities that we're seeing, um, racial disparities that we're seeing as it relates to health. And I I um, I'm thinking about a friend of mine. Recently, who uh, was, you know, at work and and experienced racism, it was pretty overt. You know, the person said they couldn't hire a certain company because they weren't sure they could trust that company. And when you kind of got to the core of it, they weren't sure they could trust that company because it was black owned. And my friend who's black was asking, pushing for the question, why wouldn't we do this? And, you know, finally got to the core. Well, we just don't think that they would truly embody uh, what we're all about. We're not sure that they're missionally aligned. We're not sure they have the expertise that's necessary to, you know, work with an organization like ours. And as we were unpacking the experience, she said at a certain point, she just dropped it and moved on. Then it was a group of us, and we were kind of processing together, and someone asked why she dropped it. And she said, because I was used to it, because this happens all the time, because I was tired. And I just, she was like, I was calculating my day. I could fight this, but I've also got to pick up my kids, and I've also got to get dinner on the table, and I've also got to take care of my health. And I've had, I have a headache right now, and this is so stressful for me. So she said, because of all these things, she dropped it. And at the end of the day, this is what life is. That's what she said. And this to me embodies what happens when we normalize the experiences. Number one, um, those who experience these types of of microaggressions and you know, these types of, of traumatic experiences, they have to normalize to survive. They make a decision. I could fight this battle. With extra energy, or I could move on and put my energy elsewhere. And it's a survival tactic. I have to do what I have to do to make it through the day. And it's not until an ally comes along to say, number one, what you experienced is real. And number two, it's wrong. It's not until someone says it's real and it's wrong that there's an awakening that can happen to say, you know what? You're right. And then perhaps lead that person to say, I can't do this by myself. I need help. And that's where we can build on the ally. So what can the church do? The church can learn to re, um, kind of uh, reengage, reimagine biblical lament. It is helpful when we can lament together. That woman, my friend who went that through that needed a community to lament with her. Somebody to say, that is horrible. That your organization would not select that vendor because they were black-owned, because they assumed that black was less than, because they assumed that they weren't as that vendor wasn't as intelligent or as capable or or as experienced, and we grieve that. It breaks our hearts. That's true, and also what you went through and the choice that you made to survive that day, we get it, and it's not your fault. And we're here for you, and we're so sorry you had to go through that. And now. Let's work together to do something about it in a way that doesn't put all the weight on you, but but puts the weight on the body of Christ. That could be a powerful moment for the body of Christ.
0: Thank you, Nicole. This is you know, so powerful and important. As you're just describing that, it made me think of your D-Men research, like knowing that you had written, I think, or it has an emphasis on African-American redemptive leadership. Mm-hmm. Can you tie in what you learned in that research, how it applies to the church and not just to African-American leaders, but more broadly, perhaps in the church to respond, like you said, as allies to respond to people in trauma. would love to get your insights on, on what you learned there and how it applies to everything we've been talking
1: about. Yeah. Well I um, you know, full disclosure, most of most demon projects are about like, how do I fix myself? <laughs> so, you know, I confess this was uh how do I figure out what it was going on in my life and Lord please Jesus let this research be a blessing to somebody beyond me. Um, but it was on the you know, it was redemptive leadership as a, a means of Developing women leaders, particularly African American women leaders. So the, the general premise of redemptive leadership is that traditional leadership says you have to go up and up and up. I was a salesman and then I became manager of the store and then I became general manager and now I own the place. So it's, it's the constant, you know, striving for the next step ahead. Redemptive leadership says, no, we follow the way of the cross, which means the greatest moments of my life might also coincide with the lowest moments of my life. And in the same way that the crucifixion defined who Christ was for all humanity and set the stage for resurrection, it could be that some of my lowest moments were the ones that defined who I was as a leader and helped to push me to new places where God wants me to be. Maybe not always up and up and up, but present and available and able to redeem, you know, all that God has uh, for in store for me. So that's the general premise. And the way that that works with women is it kind of, um, it takes away the pressure from traditional models of success. So when I was in seminary, for example, people would say, uh, what do you want to do when you get out of seminary? And almost every man I knew said they were going to be a pastor. They were going to be a pastor or they were going to lead some organization. And then you ask the women in seminary, what are you going to do? with your seminary degree. And a small percentage of them would say pastors or leaders of some sort. But the majority of them were like, well, I'm still just trying to discern and maybe I'll be able to serve on staff or maybe I'll be able to you know, support my family better as a result of this. And that's not bad. The challenge was their giftings and their skill sets were just as great Mm -hmm. as those who were proclaiming themselves to be leaders. So I was trying to dig into that problem. What is it? That makes women so apprehensive to take on leadership positions in the church. And how do we support women in a way, especially women that have strong leadership gifts and skill sets, how do we help them to be all that God has called them to be? And that's when that's where my research came into play, and I found out that women, even when they have the answers at the table, are least likely to raise their hands and talk about it. They have a higher need for confidence. They have a higher need for self-care. They have a higher need for sacred space and time with God, um, not in a way that that says men don't also need those things, but in a way that says if a woman is going to walk in the fullness of her calling in this society, she's going to need a little extra help, and that's what the curriculum is all about.
0: Beautiful. Well said. And um, love holding that model up of redemptive leadership is what we're yeah. aiming for. Not, not always ambitious or successful yes. leadership as defined by, by culture or, or ambition. Yep. Um, so good. And so in this podcast, we sort of reverse... We reverse the normal social way of starting with small talk and small questions and <laughs> leading into big ones. So we end with uh, smaller questions. So we have five questions for you. We'd love to love to hear um, your answers to. And the first one is: Is there, what is something you're reading now that you're enjoying? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah, that's so great. Oh, man. Um, There's a couple of books that I'm reading and I'm laughing because people always ask me what I'm reading and I always forget the titles. It's a horrible, (laughs) horrible thing. So um, one of them is a book by a Latina writer about uh, just the journey of dreamers and it's tracking the story. It's a fiction story, but built on some realities of what it means to be a dreamer living in New York, trying to battle the challenges and pressures of family along with life and culture. And it's an important book for me, because um, as a black person, I need to know my world is is expanded when I get to know the cultural experiences of others, even through fiction books. So I try to, you know, broaden my horizons by reading um, different ethnic uh, resources and books that are referred. And that was one of them um always reading the bible you know that's like a thing so i read the bible
0: <laughs> think, well, that's good for all christians and with your your title i think exactly. you know there's a lot i just need to pressure. say that
1: i need to say it out loud like <laughs> i actually read the bible uh i strive to read it every day very very important so yeah, you know i i'm i'm honestly just trying to really settle and still my mind on um trying to balance my reading and podcasts. I'm not a very good podcast person. I tend to want to pick up a book, but I just finished the Mars Hill part podcast. And man, what a humbling, humbling journey that helps all of us to remember what's at stake and how to kind of steward our lives and our integrity for the sake of the gospel.
2: Yeah, such a powerful podcast. Um, yep. So now, the fact that you work at American Bible Society, I think we may already know the answer to this. But uh, <laughs> what's a book you've given away more than others over the years?
1: Ah, that's so funny. Okay, so, like, seriously, it really is the Bible. It's a thing. It really is a thing. <laughs> I carry Bibles in my bag, and I'm the person who will sit next to you on the plane. And you know, there's this guy sitting on the plane. This is a couple years ago, but he was he was really distressed. You could tell he was wiping tears. So I had a Bible, and I was glad that I was able to give that away. Um, but the second most popular book I give away is my mom's book. Nice. <laughs> my mom wrote a book, When the Music Changes. Uh, her name is Alfreda Massey, and I am so proud of her. I'm so proud. Um, it kind of chronicles her journey and um, what it was like growing up in the middle of civil rights. And um, she is a superintendent of public schools and now an education consultant and She's one of my heroes, and I'm so proud of her. So I I do give her book away a lot.
0: That's great. Third question, uh, is there an app, a productivity method, a travel product, something that you're using right now that's helping you get done what you need to get done?
1: Ooh, probably Slack. Mm-hmm. Slack is great. Although I don't like uh, saying I'm a slacker, so that's awkward. <laughs> but um, I I recognize, you know the challenge of this new role, I've taken on a larger role at ABS. And the higher you get in an organization, the more um, important communication becomes. So I've found myself on Slack a lot because I have got to communicate with people. I need to check things. I need to vet things. I need to make sure we're all on the same page. I need to follow up and say, did you hear that? Or did I say something that was wrong? Or what are your thoughts about this? Or are you available? So Slack is definitely uh, probably my biggest app right now.
2: You know, so far we've asked that question to everyone, and I've never heard anybody say the best way to communicate is email. So this is just (laughs) my pitch for trying to end all emails. Um, Oh my gosh! But we'll we'll move on to the.
1: the I'm I'm on for that one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll start the petition later. Um, What's something, Nicole, that you've enjoyed maybe watching or listening to lately?
1: Ooh, so I just finished High on the Hog on Netflix. I want to recommend that to every single person, every American, but especially to every foodie. And I, I almost like want to pause and be like, hey, foodies. <laughs> but I, I, um, man, that it's a series that kind of tracks the lineage and the contributions of African-American cooking in American cooking and culture and history. And it just, it blows my mind. It starts, I mean, it goes from uh, Benin, Africa, all the way through to New Orleans and Philadelphia and New York. And then it ends in like Texas with cowboys and barbecue. And all throughout, you've got rice and you've got, you know, fried chicken and you've got beans. And then you've got like oysters and caviar and grits. And oh my gosh, can you tell? It just, like, you can't watch that show without food, but you also need to watch that show if you eat food. Which is kind of all of us.
0: <laughs> After that description, I need to go eat some food right now. I know, right? It
1: also sounds really good. It was perfect.
0: <laughs> and final question here is uh, what do you do to renew your body and mind?
1: Ooh. Well, I've got a nine year old who just turned nine and a seven year old who will be seven in a week. So being with them, learning to be present with children is. Always a gift. Um, It's not always easy, but I found that it's a necessary way for me to renew my mind, my relationship with God, my relationship with my girls. And it reminds me just how important it is to be present with them as a part of my own spiritual formation. Um, And being with my husband is always a blessing. Uh, We were joking today, our personalities are like, you know, night and day. I'm the extrovert and I want to talk all day and he's an introvert and he's like, I'm out of words. Um, But by God's grace, just being together makes us both better. And that is so refreshing to me and to my heart and mind. Um, and I, I've been a bit more active lately, you know, the weather's getting warmer, um, so trying to exercise a bit more, trying being the underlined word in bold there, and um, just recognizing that while these are compartments in my life, a box to check for exercise, a box to check for taking the girls out or date night, they are all connected when it comes to my relationship with God. So trying to see that in my time with my children, it's time with God. In my walking or my running, it's time with God. In my time with my husband, it's time with God. That's the discipline I'm trying to kind of exercise in this season.
0: Nicole, thank you for the time together. Always love talking with you. And I think you've talked about leadership and being faithful in time with God. And thanks for the way that you model faithful leadership leadership. for us and the important work you're doing. So, uh, really grateful for this time with you.
1: Yeah. And can I just thank you both for the amazing work you are doing? I mean, I remember when we first met at the beginning of the pandemic and things were just starting to take off. It has been such a blessing to see how God is expanding your ministry and your reach. Kent and Jamie, I am so, so excited about the work that you you guys are doing, and I am praying that this is still just the tip of the iceberg, that the best is yet to come and the doors that God will open so that more people can hear your message. I pray that they will be beyond anything you imagined.
0: Well, thank you for saying that and look forward to continuing to walk with, walk in friendship with you as well. So absolutely, thanks for being here. God's blessing in your continued work. And uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope.
1: Yes. Talk to you soon.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Better Samaritan. It's such an honor to be in conversation with you and to be in conversation with our guests. And today really appreciated Nicole taking us into such important issues around trauma trauma generally, and then thinking about racial trauma, the way that that still happens so widely, to think about trauma for people in prison, Uh, and in all this that, you know, she and others have worked really hard on this pathway that people who've gone through trauma can take towards healing. Uh, also so important for us to keep on talking about and thinking about and and growing around issues of racial injustice. Um, and then finally, I think Nicole just models a humble, passionate, thoughtful approach to leadership. Really appreciate her as a leader uh, and appreciate you and your joining us and appreciate the chance that we have to together be seeking how to do good better.
1: Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person. And stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.